Hello, Mitch Fetterman here, and thank you so much for listening. Welcome back to my interview with Josh Majeski. This will be part two. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one yet, why don't you go ahead and rewind this tape back about an hour or so, and you'll be able to listen to that fantastic interview. If you don't have a VCR, that's okay. You can listen on from here. And before I get back to my interview with Josh, I would ask all of you to please subscribe rate and review this podcast. I'd really appreciate it. For all you A-Team fans that were out there, folks that watched the A-Team back in the 70s and 80s, I would like to take a quote from Mr. T. The famous Mr. T said in that show, and this is a real line, he said, don't be a fool. Subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast. That's what he said. Look it up. It's a, it's a true thing. Really happened. Also, I have found out that I'm also on Stitcher. So if you have Stitcher, and you don't want to subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast on Apple, you can go to Stitcher and get it. Who knew? I was with a friend the other day. I told her, I said, listen to uh, the podcast, and she said, I don't want to listen to it on Apple. I have Stitcher. So anyway, I'm also on Stitcher, so go ahead and check that out. Uh, we have a really good show for you today. It's part two with Josh Majeski, who is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Function of Beauty, an online shampoo company worth over $100 million. Uh, we have a good one today, as I said. Uh, we're going to mostly focus on his time as a Navy seaman. He worked on a submarine, and uh, we talk about how that really impacted his life and the things that he learned working for the Navy and on a submarine. Also, we discuss some of his time working for Amazon and what that taught him before he really dove in to this business function of beauty. Speaking of function of beauty, I'd like to thank Josh again for his time allowing me to interview him. Uh, you should check out the product, Function of Beauty. It produces some really cool stuff, some great stuff. My wife has the product. She loves the product. You can check that out at functionofbeauty.com. That's functionofbeauty.com. And now for part two of my interview with Josh Majeski. Please join me under the ficus. We'd like to have an honest conversation. It's just about getting one-on-one with some of these folks, American to American, can have a real conversation. The most interesting people. But enough of this palaver. Let's get the show on the road. Let's talk about you joining uh, the armed forces. And and thank you. Uh, I'm a big supporter of veterans, and thank you for your service. So you went to MIT. You learned all this cool stuff. You graduated uh, double major, two majors, and all sorts of other degrees. You met all these people uh, that you knew were going to also be successful. And you decided to, at that time, after college, enlist in the military. Most folks decide to enlist before they go to college and then go to college on the GI Bill. What inspired you after all that? What inspired you to join the Navy and pursue a career uh, in that field? Well, so the the only thing that I ever ever really wanted to do in life was fly jets off of aircraft carriers. And uh, back in high school, that's that was what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I my eyes weren't good enough. I wore glasses and had contacts, and that was before um, PRK or LASIK were uh, acceptable uh, um, surgeries for um, Navy fighter pilots. So I had said, okay, I'm, I'm, I can't do that. You know, I thought it was just I wanted to 
to fly jets, so uh, I'm not going to join the Navy if I uh, can't fly. You know, and I got to MIT, and in that whole period of what do I want to do with my life and what, what do I want to get out of my life, big part of that was this desire to serve and this, this desire to give back. So I grew up on a small farm. My, my family was very blue-collar, and I ne- never expected to have the opportunity of MIT in front of me. And then I'm at MIT and I'm seeing all of this dramatic impact that people are having on the world around them. And I, I felt lucky to, to have the opportunity to be there and be part of that. I really wanted to do something that I, I don't want to say gave back um, because it's not, a, it's not equivalent, but I wanted to serve, right? And I wanted to do something that had a, a meaningful impact and I didn't want to end up behind my peers when it was time for me to enter the civilian workforce. So if I'm going to commit five or 10 years or, what, or even 20 years, I hadn't decided if I was going to make a career out of the Navy at that point or not. If I'm going to commit some period of, of my life to service, how do I do that in a way that also benefits my professional development or the development of the skills that I've already started to acquire while I was at MIT. And so I started looking at some options and, and submarines were just, were awesome. Uh, you know, you, you watch Hunt for Red October or, or a movie like that and it's motivating and you start asking and, and talking to people who actually do it and look at the technical and managerial challenges, the leadership challenges that come along with, with a role like that. And it, it got very exciting very quickly. And that's the path that I ended up traveling. Yeah, talk a little bit about uh, your experience on the sub. Anytime you sure. went, you know, like uh, Denzel, Gene Hackman uh, style, you know, when you can't get the message from the president whether <laughs> to launch the missiles or not. So so my grandfather was, uh, of course, a, a World War II uh, Navy veteran. He, he served on um, a, a ship that uh, escorted President uh, uh, Roosevelt to the, I think it was the, 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 the Alta? conference what whatever the conference was you know that essentially ended world war ii and then my cousin uh was a helicopter pilot for the navy as well so i find the whole navy experience just because that's the part of the military i know best interesting submarine officers are an amazing group of people um, men and women now when i joined it was only men but the the fleet has now opened up to women as well you have to be amazingly technically competent in what you're doing. They take people from really any background, any degree set. You just need to have a year of calculus and a year of physics, and your grades need to be good across the board. And then you do this this uh, intensive interview process, technical interviews, and a character interview with a four-star admiral before you're even admitted into the program. That's before you, you start any of your training and before you become an officer or anything like that, you already go through this intensive screening process. And then for me, I spent uh, 13 weeks at Officer Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island, right after I graduated from MIT. And that's, uh, you know, the first 11 weeks of that 13-week period is a Marine Corps drill instructor or multiple Marine Corps drill instructors in your face for probably 10 hours out of the day. You do a lot of push-ups, a lot of sit-ups, you bury yourself in the sand and all kinds of silly stuff that you... You, you see on uh, movies or TV, a lot of that is based in reality. So none of that has anything to do with this extreme technical competence. So it's funny to watch 
your peers who are also many of them in my class were also submarine bound and uh, they're not used to that kind of interaction uh, with authority or uh, physical interaction that much in the way of push-ups or sit-ups or anything like that so it's just it's amusing to to watch that and be part of that and there's so many funny stories about that whole whole part of the experience but so you you do that and then you transition to this intensive year or year and a half long classroom and hands-on training so the six months of classroom training to become a, a nuclear trained officer in the navy is basically take MIT's nuclear engineering master's program cut out the stuff that doesn't relate to operating the actual operating a reactor or components that go along with that or systems to support it and cram all that into a six-month period and you can do that because they have complete control over your life and your schedule and if you can't repeat this paragraph verbatim on this exam well then you need to spend an extra five hours here a day studying so they can control it you know put you on mandatory study hours and it's amazing what uh, you can you can get people to learn or do when you have complete control over their life. Um, yeah. So that's an intensive six-month period. Growing up, you didn't strike me as a guy who really responded well to, like, maybe maybe not speaking for your parents, <laughs> but people telling you what to do. And I actually wanted to ask you about that. I mean, how did how did you respond kind of the transition from civilian life into this with, and I don't know the naval yeah. term, but using the army term, you know, your drill sergeant telling you what to do and yeah. sometimes making you look like a fool and this and that. I mean, how did you, how did you respond to that and how did you eventually adapt to it? Poorly initially. <laughs> and that was some of the motivation for, you know, the path that I chose once I decided I wanted to serve was based on that because there were opportunities to serve that didn't require going to officer candidate school. So a more, um, there's a path called officer uh, indoctrination school or uh, OIS that is for um, professionals, doctors, lawyers. There's less of that drill instructor interaction with candidates. You're not a candidate at OIS. You're actually commissioned before you start learning how to wear the uniform and be an officer. Whereas at officer candidate school, you earn your commission over that 13-week period. And if you quit at any time before that, you just walk away. So most of OCS is structured around, do you really want to be there, right? There's no break you down and build you back up. It's just a continuous break you down and you walk away. So, I mean, I was I was well-conditioned from my childhood. My dad was sort of a yeller. So I grew up being yelled at and yelling back. And you know, that was kind of second nature to me. Yelling was wasn't a scary thing and it, it didn't uh it didn't hurt my feelings or anything like that so a drill instructor screaming at me didn't it didn't do much to either motivate or or demotivate or scare me or anything like that it just it was just something that was kind of half normal to me so that aspect of it was fine but just being constantly what i struggled with the most was being told i was wrong or that i was doing something wrong even when i wasn't so i knew that i was tying my shoe the correct way and that my laces were through the holes on my shoe in the right order and you have a drill instructor or a class officer standing over you telling you that it's wrong. And they're like, well, no, it's not wrong. And they don't want to hear you say that. They want you to say, I, I sir, I, I, sir, and, and fix it, right? They don't want to hear how you know that it's right. That was a, a huge struggle for me because there's only one appropriate answer to those kinds of interactions, and that's you shut up and you do what you're told. That period of transition for me was significant and actually hugely beneficial for everything else that came after that, both in the military and out of it, because it really taught me how 
control my emotions for the most part or control my innate responses and use them to my advantage. So that doesn't mean that I, I don't yell or get upset or, or get angry, but it's usually the case that if I respond in a loud a loud manner, it's intentional. It's it's to it's for a certain effect or to try to evoke a certain response intentionally. And um, so, class drill instruction has a lot to do with following uh, success in the in the military and in the civilian world now. I think. I'm sure it has really helped you too in dealing with whatever the crisis uh, of of the day. So. I'll give you an example. I work with a lot of uh, veterans in what I do, you know, as my day job. And um, a lot of them are ex-Iraq uh, and Afghanistan um, veterans. They they did multiple tours um, in Fallujah and other places. And they've, they're all the same from the perspective of if a software patch doesn't deploy properly or if a... Um, project uh, delay is it communicated well it's a problem it's a problem the problem is addressed and the and a strategy to, is to fix but at the same time you acknowledge that it's a problem but it's not the end of the world and whatever you, you know when you're in a submarine uh, under orders to carry yep. out a mission or whatever that's that's the meat and potatoes of what's important the so submarine life when you're at sea on a submarine there are thousands of ways to die at any given moment. And any single individual on the boat could kill everybody on the boat at any given moment if they do the wrong thing or don't do the thing that they're supposed to do and then fail to tell someone that or try to try to hide something, right? So um, integrity and trust in, in the competence of those around you and holding each other accountable to that that level of expectation or that standard, it permeates everything that, a, that happens on a submarine at all levels, whether you're the most junior guy who just graduated from high school six months before, went to, went to um, boot camp and is now on the boat as a, a seaman or the, the captain of the ship. That, that level of trust and expectation that everyone will hold each other accountable at all times, just it, it, it permeates everything we do. There's not a better way to say that, I don't think. So you live in that environment. And as an officer on the ship, if you're, you know, any good at what you do and you're given real responsibilities on board, right, you transition from, okay, you start out, you learn, and you you are in charge of the engine room, right? And that's the reactor compartment and all the things that make the screw turn and the lights stay on and all that kind of stuff that just keeps the ship going, right? And that's not the purpose of the ship. The purpose of the ship is the front of the boat, which is the intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance or the weapon systems that are on board, whatever they may be for whatever you're doing, right? All of the support stuff that you start with, which is two-thirds of the ship, is just there to provide that support for the actual mission. So operating the reactor and being in charge of really highly trained, highly skilled people who have been doing their job a lot longer than you have, and you show up and you're supposed to tell them how to do theirs and you're supposed to hold them accountable. It's, it's a, in a, uh, it's a very quick trial by fire and a, you know, a, a great opportunity to experiment and evolve as a leader very rapidly because you have no choice. You have to, or you don't survive. Or you'd be removed from the ship or everybody dies. One of the two. And then you transition and you're the goal as a junior officer when you first get there is to 
get to the point where you're what's called the officer of the deck, and that's the captain's direct representative at any given moment. And you're responsible as officer of the deck for every single thing that happens on the ship while you're acting in that role. Right? So for a, a six-hour period, now it's an eight-hour period, but at the time it was a six-hour watch, you are responsible for everything that happens on the ship, every, every system, every person, the air that is being uh, generated or being released from uh, storage tanks, keeping everyone alive, you know, whether or not you're operating the, gr- the garbage grinder in the, in the galley is your responsibility because it makes noise and it might end up getting you shot by another submarine or something like that. So everything about that ship and the 130-ish people that are on board is your responsibility, their lives and the two or three billion dollar vessel, everything rolls up under you. In a, in a leadership role in these environments on the ship, it, it definitely conditions you for what matters, what do you care about, and how do you respond and prioritize to make sure that you're focused on the things that actually matter at that given moment, right? But it also teaches you how to juggle and multitask like none other, because even the things that are third or fourth priority are still very important. It's just they're not as important as the current pipe that is blowing water everywhere or the fire that is burning and consuming the oxygen that's on board. You take that experience. And for me, I took that and I transitioned. I I went to uh, a shore tour after my submarine time. And so I had a a bit of transition at Purdue. But when I got to the civilian workforce at Amazon and I was an ops manager, it's a fairly intense role and a lot of responsibility. I had about a thousand people on my side of the building that rolled up under me in one way or another. Managers who work for you, they come up and they're oh, sir, we got a we got a major issue here, you know, major problem, it's an emergency. And you say, whoa, you know, like, is, is anybody going to die? Is anybody hurt? Are we going to break $10 million worth of equipment? Or are we going to put radioactive material somewhere it doesn't belong today? And if the answer to all those questions is no, it's not really an emergency. It's worth calming down and let's assess the situation and, and we'll, we'll find a way forward. It's not a, it's not a, a emergent level discussion, right? It, it just frames how you look at everything else in life. Uh, it sounds like it was a very um, role time in your life, um, but you learned a ton. How did it affect you emotionally from the perspective of you're on this ship or excuse me, you're in the submarine for – I'm assuming six months, sometimes I would imagine more than that, maybe a year. I, I don't know how long you were in there. But at the time, I, I would imagine that you had family back home, your future wife. How, how did that aspect of perhaps loneliness or or maybe you never felt that way, how, how did that kind of impact you um, being on that boat with your shipmates, your friends, you you depended on each other to survive, as you were talking about. But how did, how how did kind of leaving home and leaving people that were important to your life behind? How did that impact you during that time? Yeah. So, my wife and I found out she was pregnant with our first son, our first child, and then I deployed two weeks after that. Submarine deployments are somewhat unique in the in the military because if a submarine is at sea, you, you don't have communication with home the way you do from other surface ships or from other land-based units where there's no such, there's no opportunity to Skype or chat in real time. At best, you get very delayed emails back and forth that are read by two or three people before 
they leave the ship and before they come into the ship to make sure that no information about what you're doing or where you are or, or those types of things leaves the ship or comes into the ship with information that that may affect your state of mind on board or something like that you know the consequential things about being on a submarine you're, you're doing things that matter at that point and so there's months literally months where uh, no communication and, and there was actually my wife had a, a small issue with our or we thought there was an issue possibly with our son's heart and so she was going to Yale to all these specialists and seeing all this stuff and she was she was writing me all these messages on her but they weren't getting to me because of what we were doing and and then hey they actually did get to the ship at one point but because of the the stuff we were doing and and my uh level of contribution to them the ship's senior leadership the captain decided that it was not prudent to have my mind on those types of things until uh, we had some resolution on it. So we had, they had all these messages and uh, held on to them for approximately another month until things were resolved at home and until they got a message from my wife that, hey, all this was actually fine. And once they got that, then I got the 20 or 30 emails handed to me that told the story of Gary's story from a parent's, first-time parent standpoint, all the way through to, okay, yep, it's resolved and there's really no issue here. So that in a period of 10 minutes, the the command knew that my mind would be at ease and I'd be able to continue on my way doing the things that I needed to do on the boat. But at the same time, you're so busy and you're so focused on what you're doing that I, I don't want to say that you can you can compartmentalize because I, I couldn't. I know I couldn't. I don't know if other people can. You know, I was constantly thinking about what was going on at home. And I would assume that's the same regardless of where you serve or how you serve when you're away for long periods of time like that. It's just Submarines add this unique aspect of zero communication for very long periods of time that really make that, that more challenging. And that's, that's one of the large reasons that I actually decided not to stay and make a, a, a career out of the Navy. My son was born two week, actually two weeks after we got home from deployment. And then uh, while I was at Purdue on my shore tour deciding whether or not I was going back to a submarine or getting out of the Navy, my wife gave birth to our, our triplet daughters and I was like there's just there's no way that I, I see this working for us like it's one thing to go away and not have any communication with home for six or nine months when it's you and another adult or you and a group of adults whether it's your, your parents or your brothers and sisters whoever it is they understand what you're doing and why you're going it's completely different when you're talking about children especially young children how do you I, I, how do you explain to a three or a four-year-old why dad is gone and out of communication for four months? We haven't heard anything from him for four months. Like it, it just, I mean, and people do it. And it, it's, it's amazing the strength of so many military families and, and how they make it through that and, and, and are really stronger for it. It just, it wasn't, it wasn't for us and it didn't make sense for me. And that, that drove a lot of my decision to actually, uh, to transition to a civilian career. It, it just strikes me as amazing being a civilian that your command, and obviously that was you know the right thing to do, given the whatever mission you were on or whatever the state of affairs were at the time. But to have all those, so uh, with any uh, pregnancy, my daughter as well, you have ups and downs. You go to an ultrasound and you see something that may not be right. You go back a few weeks later. And it's okay. Everything worked out. It's okay. So you're literally 
not hearing about these ups and downs, these day-to-day kind of ups and downs with that. And then all of a sudden, one day you find out, hey, you know, fortunately, thank goodness, right? Everything's okay. And then you read back through <laughs> the emails and and read things that were good, not good, maybe dire, but then everything works out. That's just, that's, that's just amazing to me that that, and you signed up for that. That's part of the job. That's part of the role. I just find that, that aspect so amazing. Let's talk about your time at, at Amazon. Um, so you went to Purdue uh, and you, and you got your master's degree and then you decided to work for Amazon as an operations Second manager. Masters. Was that, was that local? Was that local in, um, in, Pennsylvania, or did you go somewhere else when you worked for Amazon? It was in uh, Hazleton, Pennsylvania. So I I didn't know Amazon had any facilities anywhere near home. When I decided I was getting out of the Navy, I was actually on track. I was headed to to University of Pennsylvania for a uh, they have an accelerated three year joint JD MBA. So you, you Penn Law and Wharton, and you come out with a a, a law degree and a, an MBA. Very intensively fast-paced program they they do like a dozen or 15 students a year that they admit to the joint accelerated course like that and uh, that's where we were headed it was like July or August of that year July commencement would have been the end of August somewhere in July got a phone call from an Amazon recruiter who said hey we want you to come interview and uh, I said I'm not interested I'm going to Penn and there's absolutely nothing you can present to me that will take me off this path because this is pretty pretty well aligned with uh, what I want out of the rest of my career. I said, well, we, we want you to come out and interview in Allentown. I said, okay, I'll, I'll come to Allentown if you, you fly me into Philly and you do it a day early and you give me a car and a hotel for an extra day on either end of the trip because I still hadn't figured out housing for my wife and uh, our son and newborn triplet daughters at that point. Well, they weren't newborn. They were eight months old at that point. So that's what they did. They said, yeah, great. So I used that trip to go having no ex- no intention of actually working at Amazon. I, I flew out to, to Philly and signed a lease on a house, paid a three-year a deposit for a three-year lease and, you know, lined up childcare, uh, daycare for our, our, our son and paid the deposits on that and, and then went to the interview and was interviewing and, the senior member on the interview team was actually from the uh, Hazleton facility, and he was talking about it. And I thought oh, I didn't—I didn't even know there was a facility there. I said that you know, if, if we're talking about a role there, maybe uh, maybe I would be interested in that. That's I could move home. And came out of that interview, and and that's that's what the offer was back here in Hazleton. It was a a role that I would have considered coming out of this joint JD MBA program anyway, because it's a a, a more senior level uh, operations leadership role with Amazon, who is, you know, Amazon is arguably one of the best companies out there in the in the operations end of the world. Definitely one of the most innovative and impactful on society as a whole, and, and you know, for better or for worse, however you want to look at some things. But so, like, why? Okay, now I have to really consider this. And then they offered a compensation package that w- was way more attractive than than doling out $100,000 a year to go to, to Penn with no income. So, with four uh, kids. Yeah, and we ended up at Amazon. <laughs> so. so talk a little bit about the your your time at Amazon from a Bezos culture perspective. Um, 
everybody uh, lately has really been bashing the the Jeff Bezos culture uh, of really working hard, which I'll be honest with you, that that's the culture of everywhere I worked. People work hard. They work long hours. And a lot of times it's thankless. Are all those bad things that we've read about the Bezos culture from your little slice of the world in the can-do uh, uh, industrial park in yeah. Hazleton, Pennsylvania, what, what, what was your impressions of, you know, working in that culture? Was it a good culture to work in, and what did you learn from it? I absolutely loved it. I, I, I thrived in that environment. It's not an environment for everybody. That's for sure. There are a surprisingly large number of submarine officers and senior submarine enlist, former submarine enlisted sailors there in the leadership team. It seems like a, a fairly good transition from uh, one environment to the other as far as expectations and workloads and, and just mindsets and mentalities of, of the people who are there. It is fast-paced. From an associate level, uh, I, I think it could be what you make of it. I mean, people make people would, depending on the building, you could work an eight-hour shift five days a week, or you could work a four tens, or usually an overtime opportunity. And Amazon is so employee and customer centric that it's it's almost difficult from uh, like a leadership or a management role, largely to control the the workforce because everything is def- you defer to making it a great place to work and and actually okay so how do we make it a great place to work and still meet this ridiculous demand that we that we have from our customers and uh, and these promises that we're making with very rapid turnarounds and stuff so it's and the answer is technology and great leadership and math and like actual thought and planning and and then just this will so you do all this planning math and thought and all this all this great technology that you try to involve with everything. And then it's really just comes down to will and we just need to do it. So I loved all of that. Like it's just, uh, I loved every moment of that walking away from Amazon to help get function of beauty off the ground was, was a difficult decision. Right. And the day, the day I turned in my two week notice, this was, this was shortly after I had implemented, I was only there eight months altogether, but within the first four months I had, identified some significant process changes that my senior team embraced immediately. They, they loved, they, they loved the, uh, the ideas that we brought forth and uh, they really supported everything that we were doing. And I mean, we had some dramatic tens of millions of dollar a month impact on some things. So that was a huge win. You know, I was looking at, okay, I'm, I'm on this fast track, continue growing in, in Amazon. And this, this is, everything's lining up great. Uh, okay. I, I turn in my two week notice because I'm going to go make shampoo for a company that doesn't have any money yet. We had only the money that we had contributed as co-founders and raised a little bit from friends and family. We're, we're going to pay ourselves $20,000 a year or something like that, and, and we're going to defer that salary because we don't have any money to actually pay ourselves right now. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand back my significant stock award in, in full to Amazon because none oh, of it is invested. I'm going to this nice salary. <laughs> And oh, uh, I'm going to go. And so I, I come home and find out that Brianna is uh, pregnant with our fifth child. Uh, that's the day she found out. So it was all very poetic or, or perfect storm, however you want to look at it. It was just it was like this is this is too perfect to not work now. Like this is just this 
this is going to tell a good story someday, one way or the other, is how we, we looked at it. And we laughed that evening. Um, and I took the night off. I didn't work on any Function of Beauty stuff that night. And we celebrated. So, so talk a little yeah. bit about the, your thought process around that. So at that point, you had four kids and you have a steady job at a growing company with awesome, awesome folks, stock options. Uh, my cousin worked for Amazon for a while, and he he stayed long enough to vest, and uh, he got some really good stock options out of that. You've got bills to pay and mouths to feed. How in your own mind do you assess that, feeding your family versus taking the risk? Whatever that risk is, starting a business or changing careers, you did both. Um, how did you... How did you work through that thought process in your head? Because from my point of view, I'm very risk adverse and me kind of risking the home that I'm in, being able to afford food for my daughter and taking that big leap to start your own business and to co-found a a small business, not knowing at the time if you're going to have any success or not in a market that people think are highly commoditized. So for all the risk aversion that is ingrained in me from my submarine operating days that I carry with me in a lot of what I do. I'm still at heart a very risk-loving person. I am the the outlier that you talk about in an econ course that screws up the model because, you know, I will I will take the risky choice sometimes without logic or reason. But that was not the case here. We had worked on the idea and the laid the groundwork for function of beauty for almost a year and a half before this point, before that point, maybe not quite a year and a half, at least a year. It it wasn't some rash or quick decision. It was a long drawn out thought process. I had considered working full time on function when I had decided to go to Penn. You know, that was a decision at that point to, to not commit full time to function because I couldn't afford it. Right. And even though I, I was going to have to pay tuition at Penn, the GI Bill and a couple other programs would have provided living wages or a living income for us to <clears throat> to support us through that period. And and my wife, um, she's a physician assistant, so I mean she she works and and could support us uh, to a certain extent. With a growing family, two incomes is definitely much more beneficial. The idea had matured enough. You know, I, I saw it going somewhere, and I was I was confident in the team. Right. So at that point, it was a team of three. It was me. Zahir, our our co-founder and our CEO, my, he, my best friend from MIT, and then Hian, our, um, our third co-founder. She's uh, one of the best cosmetic chemists in the world, uh, formulation chemists. And I was I was pretty confident that we could probably make this work, you know. And then, but at the same time, I left Amazon intentionally left Amazon on very good terms. Uh, I made sure that. You know, I, I had communicated my transition well in advance of, of actually giving that notice. I wanted to make sure that if for some reason Function couldn't raise our our seed money that we needed to, to make this happen or or uh, something just fell through and it just didn't look like it was going to make, it wasn't going to work, that I could pivot and come back. I would have lost my stock award and I'd have lost all of the time in between as far as advancement and seniority or, or however you want to look at it. But I, there was a there was an off ramp that wasn't great, but it, it definitely wasn't the end of the world for us. Uh, so I guess I I had some risk aversion there, or at least some planning uh, built into the risk loving uh, part of of what we were doing. 
Next week on the show, we will wrap up our interview with Josh Majeski with part three. Uh, in that interview, we'll be discussing his time building Function of Beauty with his business partners. Josh provides some great experiences and lessons learned to young entrepreneurs who are looking to build a business and really discusses some of the challenges that he has experienced during that time. Thank you all for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review to this podcast, and we will see you next week. Thank you again for listening, and please... Stay classy at her webs.